It's March 4th, 2022, and Ukraine has been under attack by Russian forces for nine days. We begin with a brief look at an ongoing list of Russian war crimes reported by the Ukraine Crisis Media Center, which serves as an online evidence archive of Russian atrocities against Ukraine's civilian population and to aid in future prosecution. These updates are from the outskirts of Kiev. March 1st, in Borodyanka, six civilians were killed when Russian troops fired rockets at residential areas, commercial buildings, and infrastructure. Also on March 1st, west of Kiev in Tsirumur, two civilians were killed and three were injured when a Russian airstrike targeted private homes. On March 3rd, in Cherniv, northeast of Kiev, 47 civilians, 38 men and 9 women, were killed by a Russian airstrike on a residential building. 18 civilians made it out alive. Now to today's update. In Zaporizhia, 190 kilometers southwest of Kharkiv, we begin this episode with the most consequential event of the last 24 hours. It was reported early this morning by media outlets that the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant had been captured by Russian forces. Overnight, reports of shelling and firefights between Russia and Ukraine caused a fire near two of the plant's six reactors. The Zaporizhia plant is the largest nuclear power plant in all of Europe. The number of Russian and Ukrainian casualties has not been released, though it has been confirmed that the plant's safety system are intact and there's been no release of radioactive material. Zaporizhia is located in southeast Ukraine on the Dnieper River, sitting northeast of Kherson on the Black Sea and west of Mariupol on the Azov Sea. Ukraine gets half its electricity from nuclear facilities, and Russia appears to be strategically targeting other power producers, like the 351-megawatt hydroelectric plant in Novokakova, which was seized by Russian forces early on in the invasion. The Kiev Independent reported that the site had been taken on February 24th. Ukrainian flags had been removed from the building, and the plant remains operational, though it is under Russian control. Nova Kakova is in the Kherson Oblast, located on the Dnieper River some 60 miles east of Kherson. Satellite imagery from Maxar Technologies published February 26th show Russian ground forces assembled in Nova Kakova at and near the hydroelectric plant, backing up the Kiev independence reporting. UN Ambassador to the United Nations Linda Thomas-Greenfield called the attack on the Zaporizhia nuclear facility a, quote, dangerous new escalation and that the attack, quote, put Europe's largest nuclear power plant at grave risk, end quote. Rosemary DiCarlo, UN Undersecretary General for Political Affairs, called attacks on nuclear facilities, quote, contrary to international human law, end quote. Speaking from the Zaporizhia power plant, Petro Kotin, who's the head of the state-owned nuclear power firm Energo Atom, described the situation inside, quote, the station management works at Invader's gunpoint, end quote. In total, the Zaporizhia plant has six nuclear reactors. After the firefight and subsequent fire, two of the three operating reactors were shut down. One reactor remains online and is operating at 60% capacity. Up until today, China has been dead silent on condemning Russia's aggression on Ukraine, but news of the fire at the Zaporizhia plant has stirred a response from Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman Wang Wenbin. Quote, China attaches great importance to nuclear safety and is gravely concerned about the safety and security situation of nuclear facilities in Ukraine. End quote. He closed his comment on the nuclear plant with a subtle poke at Putin, saying China would, quote, call on relevant parties to keep calm and exercise restraint, prevent further escalation of the situation, and ensure the safety of relevant nuclear facilities, end quote. But China has not been completely silent on the war itself, accusing the United States specifically of spreading disinformation and denying U.S. responsibility for the Russian invasion. China is one of the 35 U.N.-membered nations that abstained from voting on the U.N. resolution to condemn the Russian invasion. 
The situation in Zaporizhia has many in Western and Eastern Europe reliving the fear they experienced following the April 26, 1986 explosion of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Chernobyl, Ukraine, some 700 kilometers northwest of Zaporizhia. The fire, explosion, and subsequent fallout from the Chernobyl disaster forced the evacuation of nearby communities and contaminated over 150,000 square kilometers of land in Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. Though the Zaporizhia plant is a more modern plant with better engineering and safety features, thus unlikely to experience a meltdown, active fighting and bombing near the site has put Europe on edge. Following the news of the fire at Zaporizhia, Scandinavian and Eastern European pharmacies have reported a surge in demand for iodine tablets, which are used to protect children from radiation sickness. Moving to Kiev, the 40-mile-long convoy still appears to be stuck with little movement. Photos of a military vehicle with a shredded tire have sparked an esoteric debate online whether the tires themselves are to blame, with online speculators claiming they are either, quote, cheap Chinese knockoffs, end quote, or poorly built Belarusian military spec. The only clear information available from reviewing the hotly contested photo is that there is no indication that this vehicle is part of the stuck convoy but that the truck's steel wheel has sheared into two pieces, leaving the hub of the wheel on the axle while the wheel's rim appears stuck in the tire. This is such an absurd topic. We'll just remind anyone listening that the phrase, quote, cheap Chinese knockoff, end quote, is also a racist jab at an uninvolved party. President Volodymyr Zelensky remains in Kiev, where today it was announced that the Ukrainian president would meet with the full United States Senate via Zoom on Saturday morning, a meeting arranged by the Ukrainian embassy in the United States. Only a few days ago, Zelensky addressed his fellow Ukrainians with videos taken in the streets of Kiev to show that he had not left his country behind. The Times of London has reported that in the last week alone, Zelensky has thus far survived or evaded three assassination attempts, apparently causing him to confine himself indoors as the war progresses. London Times points to mercenaries from the Wagner Group, a private army owned by Yevgeny Prigozhin, and Chechen special forces under direction of Ramzan Kadyrov, head of Russia's Chechen Republic. Prigozhin and Katarov are close allies with Vladimir Putin. Alexei Danilov, Secretary of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, stated that Ukrainian security officials were tipped off by people working for Russia's own Federal Security Service, FSB, who are against the Russian invasion. The London Times reports that its source on the assassination attempts a contact close to the Wagner Group was surprised how much the Ukrainian team knew about the Wagner Group's attempt. Earlier this week, it was reported that the Kremlin was offering bounties on more than 20 top Ukrainian officials, including President Zelensky. In a sign that Putin might not be winning the war of words in Russia, Russian parliament today passed a law censoring language on the reporting of the Russian invasion. The bill, approved by Russia's state Duma and expected to be signed by Putin on Saturday, would impose a jail sentence of up to 15 years for publishing false information about the war in Ukraine, specifically outlining the description of Russia's war as, quote, war, end quote. The new law does not affect only independent journalists, but all journalists and news media operating within the country and has wide-reaching effects. Bloomberg, BBC News, CNN, and CBS News have all issued similar statements regarding reevaluating the reporting efforts inside Russia's borders, most of whom say they will have to report outside the country. 
Outside of Kharkiv, 100 kilometers northwest, reports from the town of Trosnyets claim Russian occupiers have threatened to shoot medics if they attempt to go on emergency calls, stating they only allow for medics to attend to children and only in emergencies. Locals cannot go out to buy food or other goods. Stores have been looted and Russian troops are on constant patrol. Now to port city Mariupol in southeast Ukraine on the Sea of Azov. Mariupol has successfully held off Russian forces on this ninth day of fighting, though the city has been blockaded on the land and surrounded in the sea for several days. Power, electricity, phones, heat, internet, all utilities to the city have been cut, and Russian troops outside the city continuously shell surrounding areas and fire into the city itself, regularly killing civilians. Ukrainian medics don helmets and rush into the city at night and in the early morning to keep cover. Communication is difficult, and in the homes of victims, they work by flashlight to aid the injured. Shelling continues relentlessly, targeting schools and residential areas, arguably war crimes. Mariupol's mayor, Vadim Boychenko, has said that emergency services are ready to restore electricity and water, but that they cannot move forward without a ceasefire. Quote, We aren't simply saying it, we are screaming it, so the international community hears our voice about the unfolding humanitarian catastrophe for our city. End quote. Analysts watching the siege on Mariupol play out have compared it to the Russian assault on the Chechnyan city of Grozny during the First Chechen War of the 1990s, as well as the tactics Russian troops used in Syria, utterly destroying cities' infrastructure to force them to capitulate or surrender. This is a form of psychological warfare and torture as well, essentially breaking the will to resist the incoming forces. Without a city to defend, why bother fighting? The Russian military left the Chechen capital Grozny in utter waste, no building left inhabitable, no sign of life anywhere. The same can be said for much of Aleppo, Syria. The same can be said for much of Europe after the Second World War. History has shown us the outcome of this war as soon as it started. No matter who surrenders, no one will have won. A warning to listeners, the following segment covers the topic of rape. On the ninth day of Russia's war against Ukraine, the first stories of rape as a war crime committed by Russian soldiers are beginning to emerge. As of March 3rd, a doctor at the Karabalesh Polyclinic in Kherson has confirmed 11 cases of rape by Russian troops occupying Kherson. Only five of the victims have survived. Locals have spread word for women and girls of the city not to leave their homes. Svetlana Zarina, a Kherson resident, told CNN host John Berman in a live interview today that she had heard from friends about a 17-year-old girl raped and murdered by Russian soldiers. Reporting around this claim has been asterisk, as in, not yet independently verified. As in peacetime, claims of rape must be independently verified by others in order to be taken seriously. This is the reason that rape testing kits collect dust in evidence lockers, why local police ask pointed questions to rape victims to make sure they weren't, quote, asking for it, end quote. And as the war in Ukraine drags on, we should expect to see more claims made by the Ukrainian government as well as the citizens of Ukraine that Russian soldiers are raping and murdering girls and women. Rape is a weapon of war, but has only been considered so by the UN officially for 14 years. On June 19, 2008, the UN Security Council unanimously approved a resolution that classified rape as a weapon of war. Croatian author Slavinka Draculic said of the resolution, quote, finally, sexual violence is recognized as a weapon and can be punished, adding, we know now, as we knew even before the passage of this resolution, that rape is a kind of slow murder, end quote. 
Survivors of rape during wartime face an immense struggle to be heard, to be believed, to be counted as victims of war crimes. In cities, villages, or prisons where medical treatment isn't easily available, where public services aren't able to mobilize or respond to emergencies, survivors find themselves alone. Their only evidence is their story. The paternalist gatekeeping of trying to find the perfect victim, one who didn't step out of line, go where they shouldn't have, one who is sympathetic, or one who looks like the person writing down their story, that maintains the thick shroud of doubt around such claims. Rape as a weapon of war is as old as war itself, though we have only begun to study it seriously in the last half century. Susan Brownmiller's 1975 book, Against Our Will, Men, Women, and Rape, asserts that men use rape to bolster male dominance and keep women in a state of fear, the type of fear that causes women to communicate throughout their city, town, or village, not to leave the house, not to go anywhere, and to stay hidden. No matter where the warfare takes place, whether the Congo, Vietnam, or Ukraine, the brutality of rape serves an effective tactic to destroy a community from within, from families and communities rejecting their victims to leaving an entire community in fear, fear to the point of surrender in the hopes that the aggressor will leave, though that is often not the case. It is a form of psychological warfare, one that humiliates its victims. That humiliation is compounded when claims are met with skepticism. The language in the 2008 UN resolution puts it succinctly, quote, Women and girls are particularly targeted by the use of sexual violence, including as a tactic of war to humiliate, dominate, instill fear in, disperse, and or forcibly relocate civilian members of a community or ethnic group. End quote. Wartime rape did not magically resolve itself with the UN resolution in 2008. On March 20, 2020, during a paramilitary session in Tigray, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed answered a question about sexual violence, saying, quote, The women in Tigray? These women have only been penetrated by men, whereas our soldiers were penetrated by a knife. End quote. This came after an Ethiopian general earlier in the year was filmed addressing his officers on the subject of rape, saying they might expect rape to happen during wartime, but not in the presence of federal police. The world, all of us, not just Ethiopia, we all have a long way to go to correct this trajectory we found ourselves on, this trajectory that sees us discrediting victims in favor of, quote, getting the whole picture, end quote, that sees global leaders joking about the war crimes committed by their own soldiers, this trajectory that finds us acknowledging the reality of rape while simultaneously being obtuse to its true horror, a horror that persists and exacerbates in war. But I use Ethiopia as an example not because of its location on a map, not to distract from the war in Ukraine, but to issue a very dark warning. We know of this reality in Ethiopia not because the people are so vile or prolific at it, but because of the year, because of the time in which these statements were captured and how they were made public. We live in the age of real-time global coverage of everything that happens all at once cameras in our pockets that can record and project out to the world. We are seeing the results in real time in Ukraine. We are seeing corpses in high definition. We are getting minute-by-minute -minute updates, not from news media, but from the citizens themselves in the middle of war. It is only a matter of time before, in a conflict this size, we are confronted with the digital proof so often demanded of our victims. Only then, when the proof is too gruesome to stomach, will we believe it. But this does the victims no justice. Ukraine is a special place to the people who call it home. 
Tigray, Bosnia, Cambodia, Uganda are all special places to those who call them home. The women there who survived war will tell you the stories you have yet to hear from Ukraine. To stand with Ukraine during this war, no end in sight for the shelling and casualties, I urge you to stand with the women who come forward and share their stories. I urge you to stand with them after the war is done, to fight for and support the prosecution of sexual war crimes as vigorously as we prosecute the bombings of schools and homes, the targeting of civilian infrastructure, torture, hostage-taking, deportation and confinement, and the willful killing of civilians and children. The only solution to war crimes is the end of war. That does it for today's recap. It's March 4th, 2022. I hope I get to announce the end of this war tomorrow.